0: A New Year's message this morning drawing from uh, a text that occurs twice in the Gospels. I'll read Luke's rendition of it. Luke chapter 10, simply uh, verses 1 and 2 this morning. Let's hear the Word of God together. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two. Into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is God's perfect word, and it has a challenge for us. May we receive it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. I appreciated Liz's question about New Year's resolution and her honest confession. (laughs) That's everybody's confession, isn't it? I gave up resolutions a while back, but uh, I substituted something, and that was uh, new intentions. How about that? (laughs) you know it's true when we when we want to change something in our life that's really significant so much so that we have to resolve that it'll be different a lot of that determination falls apart because really big changes require uh, a process of altering things in our lives and so seriously i've uh, the last few years have have uh, written out some things that i want to regularly change in my life and approach in my life and uh, i 've written them out in my, in, in a, on a one sheet that I put in the back of my journal, my, my prayer and devotional journal, and my commitment is to review those every week. Sometimes I make it, sometimes i don 't. But under the new intentions, there are the steps in my life that i 'm going to have to do to create change, so that becomes a new uh, dimension of strength in my life. It covers a lot of different sectors in my world and uh, and so that's that's more practical for me. As I review them every few weeks, I realize what I committed to, and I realign myself, and I slowly, in some of those areas, not all, I'm able to intentionally engineer some gradual change. So that's how I work. One of the ones that I'm I'm going to add this year, uh, as I finish over the next day or two, my New Year's meditations. I take the turn of the year every year, as I've mentioned to take a look at where I am and, and where, more of where he wants me to be. Uh, a deeper intention uh, uh, about uh, looking with compassion and the gospel toward my lost world. So I want to talk about that today. Every year at the New Year, for the all the time I've been here with you, I've taken a, a time in the, the New Year's Turning Sunday to... Bring a standalone message about resolution or intention for the new year. And uh, I want to talk to you about a new intention in my life that comes out of the scripture itself that I hope could be a new intention in your life, and that is to ask God to build in me a new heart for a lost world. To build in me something that goes beyond emotion to determination. That is to build a greater passion and practice in my life of opening the gospel to the lost people around me. Uh, it's, a, it's an intention that I have to build because there seems to be a growing resistance in two dimensions toward bringing the gospel. Uh, one is new, and that, that's a new resistance that I'm seeing in the heart of the believing church an attitude of hardening toward an increasingly dark world. It's happened over the last couple of years as the world has broken in upon us through this difficult experience that we've had around us of social upheaval and the responses to the challenge that we've all faced in the world together. And I've seen... Uh, as differences have heightened and positions have hardened and realities have become clear about the, the mood of the world toward things that believers value, I've seen unfortunately not only a, a hardening of the world toward the church, but I've, I've seen in my life and in others a, a hardening of our heart toward the lost. It's a very difficult thing to admit, uh, but it's something I, I think we need to realize can easily happen as we become attacked and as we become marginalized and as it becomes clearer just how lost and, and uh, broken our world is under the pressures of this new time. We have to guard in our hearts against a resistance and a sense of hardness toward the world. That's one way. That's a new way. But there's an old dimension that works against us sharing the gospel, and that's the resistance from the world toward the gospel itself. That's always been present, but it is growing in its harshness. Uh, it's something that you can see examples of around us, a growing dismissiveness and hardness toward Christian faith, but it's, it's always been part of our lives. A number of years ago, um, there was a media instance of it that um, I watched at the time. This is a little over 10 years ago now. It happened in 2010. And, uh, and yet it stuck, it stuck with me over the years because of how stark it was. Uh, many of you may know Britt Hume. A lot of hands would probably go up. He's been a commentator on Fox News for many years, an excellent journalist and news commentator. And um, he got into a conflict over proclaiming his faith on the air. This was 10 years ago, now. I remember it because it was connected to the Tiger Woods debacle. Back in 2010, Tiger Woods had a secret life that came into public view when he had the, uh, the drug-fueled incident with his wife and wrecking the, the Cadillac Escalade on, on the way out of the condo development after an angry argument, and it... It brought into full view the hidden life he had as a sexual addict and the many sexual relationships he had and the the deconstruction of his marriage and all of that. It was a very public event and it affected us because he was somebody that was held in high affection by so many. And uh, Britt Hume was on Fox News Sunday back in 2010 commenting on this. He made a personal comment that created a huge reaction. What you didn't know at the time was that that, uh, Britt Hume had become a believer about 10 years before that, when his son Sandy committed suicide at the age of 28. It shook his world, and the believers that were around him in the news and entertainment world reached out to him, and Britt was led to Christ became part of a fellowship in the Capitol, became discipled, and decided to not hold back his personal faith convictions in his line of work. Well, Fox News Sunday had a special roundtable after the Tiger Woods debacle. And they were commenting about Tiger Woods and how could he find his way forward. In that uh, roundtable on Fox News Sunday, Brit Hume said the following, quote, Tiger Woods will recover as a golfer. Whether he can recover as a person, I think, is a very open question. The extent to which he can recover seems to me depends on his faith. He said to be a Buddhist. I don't think that faith offers the kind of forgiveness and redemption that is offered by the Christian faith. So my message to Tiger would be, Tiger, turn to the Christian faith. And you can make a total recovery and be a great example to the world. End quote. Almost as soon as the program ended, emails started flying and social media, as it was at that time, started percolating and Brit Hume was relentlessly attacked for weeks afterward for practicing hate speech. He went through an incredible snowstorm of criticism he was interviewed sometime after that by Christianity Today. And they uh, asked the question, Britt, how would you respond now to people who are criticizing you for your statement? He said, quote, I certainly expected this. I'm nowhere near the first Christian to be mocked for his faith. It's simply a fact of life that the two most explosive words in the English language appear to be Jesus Christ. You don't need to say them if you speak openly of Christianity. Faith engenders a tremendous reaction, a lot of it positive, and a lot of it negative. He would go on in that interview to say something that I think Christians need to hear more of, and that was, but this is what we should expect. This is what we're in it for. I knew that before I said it, and I stand behind what I said. That's a powerful testimony, but it reveals the fact that we are in an increasingly resistant, increasingly hostile world society toward the claims of Christian truth. Now this was predicted by Jesus, who said that if they have hated me, they will certainly hate you. Why is Christianity kind of a lightning rod of social reaction? Because unlike any of the other faiths in the world, Jesus said, as I preach they will find out that they have sin. If I had not come, they would not see their sin. But now that I have come, they see their sin, and they hate me for it. Christianity is unique. It's not a philosophy. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it religion. It is the only faith in the world that has a cross planted at the center of it, and the cross calls out man's sin and need for a Savior. And so that hostility increases as the world ages into its sin and cycles into deeper and deeper depravity. Jesus also predicted that. Into that environment, Jesus still sends us. And the text we're going to look at is an example of how Jesus sent people out to bring the news of his cross to the world, but also a description of the heart that we need to have as we go. What's the context of Luke 10? Well, as you look back into Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, you see that this, was the, uh, this occurred in the last several months of the earthly life of Christ. Verse 51 of Luke 9, Now the days drew near for him to be taken up. That meant put on the cross and then ascended into heaven. And he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this takes place in the final months of Christ's earthly life as he was headed toward the crossword. It's a time of increasing rejection of the ministry of Christ. The early surges of popularity and curiosity, and great crowds following him, had begun to diminish, and more and more people were rejecting him. Right after right before this incident, Jesus sent his disciples ahead to a village of the Samaritans and they rejected the messengers of Christ and Christ himself. And so Christ was going through increasing amounts of rejection by the people that he would come to reach. Then finally in the end of Luke 9, Jesus begins to talk to people who wanted to be his followers about the price of being a gospel carrier in this world. He said, if you follow me, you'll not have any place to lay your head, Luke 9, 58. And finally, in Luke nine sixty two, Jesus said to all those that would follow him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're going to follow me, you can only follow me if you're willing to pay a price of what carrying my gospel brings. That's the context. Right after that, the scripture says in chapter 10, verse 1 in our text... After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. What was Jesus doing? In spite of people rejecting his gospel, he sent more laborers out to proclaim his gospel. He picked 72 other disciples in addition to the 12. He divided them into into teams, two by two, and he sent them out ahead of him on his final journey to Jerusalem to go to the towns he was going to visit and prepare them for the coming of Jesus to come into their towns and preach, to tell them in advance about the Messiah, to explain the gospel in advance of that Jesus was going to preach and proclaim and show by his miracle power. They were gospel bearers in an increasingly dark time, and that's an example of of all of us. We are gospel bearers in increasingly dark times where no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is going to finish. And so, This is an emblem of the gospel in every age, and every age into the future is going to be a darker age. So that's the context of it. Now, as he sends them out in verse 1, he he gives them a challenge in verse 2. And he said to these that he was sending out. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he sends them out, but he prepares their hearts. He sends them out with a a twofold understanding of what to have in your heart as you're going out in the midst of a lost world. And that's the nature of my message. I'm going to teach those two dimensions. They form what a new heart for a lost world looks like. The first thing he told them is to ask God for a broken heart over a lost world. Ask him to build in you an attitude of pity over how lost people are. He says the harvest is plentiful. Now he builds this image of the harvest. And I'm going to teach this from a growing conviction that I've had as I've looked at this passage and, of course, looked at other Bible commentators, that this is one of those gospel sentences that I think has been misapplied. You may disagree with me, and you're welcome to do so. But as I've looked at the concept of the harvest in Scripture, there are really two types of harvests. Many times in many missions conferences and many other places, I've heard this text taught in the first phrase stating, the harvest is plentiful from the viewpoint of there are more people that want to come to Christ than there are laborers. Now, in a sense, that's true. But I've heard this taught as stating there's an overwhelming number of people that want to come to Christ. We just don't have enough people to reach them. I don't think that's what Christ is talking about here. Because you see, the Bible teaches that there are two separate harvests among the human race. One is massive, and the other is smaller. The massive harvest is the one I think he's talking about here, and it's the harvest of judgment to come. There is a great harvest. A harvest, the word plentiful here means flowing over, means more than you want. That harvest seems to be, according to Scripture, a harvest about those at the end of the age who will have refused Jesus Christ and forgive my biblical language, but it's a point in time in the future when they will be harvested right into hell. This harvest is plentiful. This harvest is a harvest not of joy, but of judgment. And Jesus knows it's coming. And he says, listen, multitudes are ready to be harvested into hell. I'm sending you out so that you may harvest those who will come into heaven. There is a harvest that every human being will be, a, will be subject to if they've not turned to Jesus. You say, why do I believe this? Well, partly because of the testimony of the Scripture. I told you there was one other instance in the Gospels where you see this same principle taught and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9 and look at verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. This is Matthew 9, 35, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Look at this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This was another occasion when Jesus gave them the same command. What does this occasion teach us about why Jesus taught this principle as often as he did? Look at verse 36. He taught it out of a deep heart of compassion over the crowds. It says that he had deep compassion upon them. If you're a studier of the New Testament and the Greek, you know that that is a picturesque word in the Greek language. Splenachnon is how it's pronounced. That alone would make you want to see what it looks like in Greek, wouldn't it? It's a curious word in its pronunciation, but it's a passionate word in its meaning because it meant deeply felt sympathy. It referred to deep pain that came in the inner part of your physical body. And we know this as how we are struck with a sense of pity over someone's situation that strikes us suddenly, and it just strikes us in the very heart of our being. And it actually provokes a word, usually. When you find out about someone who's facing a terrible situation, or you find out about someone who's undergone a deep tragedy, and you get the news, what happens to you? Actually, something comes out of your heart, and you say, oh! Oh! That's... The the word that's used here, it's a depth of reaction to someone's distress. And when Jesus looked out on the crowds, he had that depth of feeling in in his inner man over what they were experiencing. Deep compassion because they were harassed and helpless. Those two words are picturesque too. The word harassed meant worn out or beaten down. And helpless meant that, lying just totally prostrate, unable to rise, unable to go on any further. And he was looking at all these people around him. And he had deep compassion for them so much that his heart would cry out in prayer over them because they were beaten down and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he looks at the world this way. And he says, oh, this is the world. This is where they are under the evil of the world. It beats them down and it leaves them helpless. It leaves them heading for hell. And so join me in going out to them and harvesting those who will come. For there is a harvest that all these people are heading to, a harvest of heading into eternity. So the very hard attitude of Jesus causes me to think that this is not a harvest of joy, it's a harvest of great concern. Go out because there's a harvest coming that's going to harvest people into eternity. But not just that, but the concept of harvest in Scripture. If you do a word study of it, you'll see that there is a great harvest that is indeed plentiful, but it's the harvest at the end of time of people heading into hell. Joel chapter 3 describes this harvest. In Joel chapter 3, verse 13, pardon me, verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, that's a harvesting blade, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision." He's talking there about the great judgment that will fall on mankind that have resisted the gospel at the very end of the age when the nations will gather against Christ. They will be harvested right into judgment. It is not a joyful picture. Matthew chapter 13, as you go back into the the gospel of Matthew, really defines this in one succinct sentence. Jesus was talking about the great harvest of sweeping people into eternal judgment at the end of time. And in Matthew 13 and verse 38 and 39, The field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Look at this. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And it's a harvest of gathering into the burning of hell. You say, Pastor, I didn't expect this kind of negative encouragement on a New Year's morning. I'm sorry, but sometimes the new year should be one of greater intention, to be serious about the things of God. This was on the heart of Christ. It ought to be on our hearts. He, he had a broken heart over a lost world, and I think ours is fading. And we need it rekindled. Jesus said a harvest is coming. That harvest is plentiful. There are more people than you can imagine heading to that terrible and fateful harvest. The the harvest is at the end of the age. And of course we know also that Jesus Christ could speak with authority over that harvest because as many have pointed out, Jesus is the one who will harvest people believe it or not, right into hell. Revelation 14 talks about that great event at the end of time. In Revelation 14, the Bible says that John saw in a vision, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. That's the instrument of judgment. Who is the son of man? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ in the far future. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour has come, for the harvest of the earth is full ripe, So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. If you read the whole context of this, it is a reaping and a, of a harvest into judgment. So Jesus Christ could speak with a broken heart over a hell-bound world because he knew that as Almighty God, one day it would be his just duty to sweep those who had rejected him into hell with his own hand. He had pity over them because he knew what was coming. His heart was broken because he knew the destination of lost people. And he says, you have no idea how many multiplied millions are heading there. His heart was broken. How do we feel about it? I feel that in some of the disdain we've had over a lost world and its predictable hatred and it's predictable deception that some of us in unguarded moments may have even said in our hearts, well, so be it. Oh, we need a heart of compassion, not rejection of an increasingly deceived and hateful world. If you really know what they're heading to, how could you be otherwise? Pastor Charles Spurgeon said this in one of his gospel meetings. If sinners are going to be lost and damned to hell, at least let them have to leap to hell over our bodies. And if they're going to perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay and be saved. If hell is going to be filled, at least let it it be filled in the face of our best efforts and let no one, not one, go there unwarned and unprayed for. This is what Christ is speaking of here. Ask God for a broken heart over a lost world because there is a huge harvest, but it's a harvest of judgment. Now, you're saying, but isn't there also... A harvest of people coming into heaven oh yes Jesus called that the early harvest go in your Bibles to John and chapter 4 please early in his ministry Jesus went through a place called Samaria and he stopped by a well and there was a woman filled with a life of sin there you remember her and she came down to draw water and Jesus created what we would call an evangelistic conversation and he opened who he was to her, revealed her sin, showed her her Savior. She came to believe in him in that moment, and then she left her water pot by the well because she now had living water (laughs) coursing through her heart. And She ran back into town, and she told everyone she knew about this man who knew everything about her life but brought her to God's forgiveness anyway. And Jesus was out there... uh, on the hillside or at the well there, which was at the top of that town in Samaria. And that woman had gone out into the highways and byways and told all of her friends, come and see this man who's told me all I've ever done, but brought me the forgiveness of God. Come and taste the living water. And in John chapter 4, Jesus is sitting there with his disciples after this event. And in John 4:34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? At that time, it was four months before the regular harvest would come in. The fields were still green. You couldn't see the heads of, and the beads of, of full grain on them. They were still green. But on those fields... The people were coming up to hear Jesus after this woman had told them about this marvelous Savior. And they were running up the hills in their white robes. And as they ran up the hills, those green hills became white with the the color of their robes and their headdresses behind them as they were running up the hill to find out about Jesus Christ. And he pointed out, and he says, Do you not say that it's four months and then comes the harvest? Oh, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. All those people coming up, they were coming to be harvested into heaven. And he says, I'm going to reap my harvest. So there is an early harvest. That happens anytime somebody comes out of darkness and into light. That's what he was sending these guys out to do. So I hope I'm not confusing you. Let me draw it together as we go back to our passage. Jesus said, I'm sending you out into this increasingly hostile world. You've got to be committed to hold on to the plow and not look back. As I send you out, realize the harvest of hell is huge. But there's a harvest for heaven that can come early when you go out with the gospel and those who will come. You go out as my laborers and you bring them in but be aware that you've got to go because if you don't, the harvest of hell will take them all. He says this, you go out. Hell is yawning in its open mouth to take them in. But I want you to go out and reap an early harvest of those that will come to me, those that long for me, those that are being stirred, those that want to repent, and they will come. But realize this, The laborers are few. The implication there is be aware not only of the reality of hell but pray for more just like you to go out and take the gospel for those who are part of the early harvest who long for heaven. But the laborers are few. Interesting, the word laborer, just a standard word that meant somebody that's willing to do something. Interesting. These guys were not trained. All these, these 72 that he, he pulled out from the crowd of hundreds that were following at that time, they just had deeper hearts for God than the others, but they had never been trained. They had no special skill sets. They were just more faithful to Christ, and he, he drew those out of the crowd, and he sent them. They didn't have a lot of skill training, a lot of theological knowledge. They just knew that they had found the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ, and he sent them out. The word was not skilled laborers, but just people that will do something. And that's us. Every believer has a place in that verse. Believe it or not, my friend, if you're 20 minutes old in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be a laborer in his harvest. If you're 20 years old in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me put a point on it, you should be a laborer in his harvest. And more are always needed because the harvest of hell is so huge. More laborers are needed. There are not enough. There are few in comparison to the challenge. Now, there was a survey done about 15, 20 years ago. It's not, not got a lot of weight of credibility now, but back in, in the day, it was said that 33% of American adults were evangelicals. I don't think we've seen that play out in reality. But in that survey also it said only 2% of evangelicals regularly share a faith. Wow. The laborers are few. Why is it that so few of us move with intentionality into a lost world's darkness? I would say, on a human scale, part of it is pure distraction. I think it's being caught up with other things that we value, valuing a career track, valuing social acceptance, valuing uh, all the other things I put my time into, the the gathering of my tricks and trinkets, the the increasing of my material life, being caught up in the, the material distractions of our world that we're not hearing the real lostness around us. Chuck Swindoll Illustrated that distraction in a well-known story. It was a story of a man from Ecuador who was visiting New York City. And Ecuador, of course, is from the region of the Andes Mountains. And this man was from a high mountain town, a small mountain town in the heights of the Andes Mountains. And he was visiting and walking with a, a, a friend of his down New York, just Madison Avenue, I guess, in New York City walking the sidewalk. Right in the center of Manhattan, the Ecuadorian was walking along with his friend from New York City, and he suddenly grabbed his friend's arm. And he whispered in his ear, wait, I can hear a cricket. This guy from New York said, what? Come on, a cricket? Man, this is downtown New York. We're on Madison Avenue, Manhattan. No, seriously, I really can't hear a cricket. He says, that's impossible. You can't hear a cricket. There's taxis going by. There's horns honking. There are people screaming at each other. This is New York. Brakes are screeching. Buses are sliding. Both sides of this street are filled with people right now. Thousands of people. There are car stereos booming away. The subway is running right beneath us under that grate. You can't hear a thing. You can't possibly hear a cricket. And the Ecuadorian looked at him and said, wait a minute. And then he started walking down the street, and he walked out toward the end of the block ahead of his friend. And he cocked his head this way and that and stood for a second and listened, put his hand to his face and thought, no, that's not it. He walks across the street and starts walking back the other way. And so his friend hurries and catches up with him. And the Ecuadorian walks about halfway down the block on the other side and then stops. And there's a large cement planter there where a tree was growing He reaches down, he digs into the mulch of the planter, and in a few seconds he comes up with a a cricket. He said, see, it's right here. His friend finally got across the street and walked back through that Manhattan bustle to him, and he said, how in the world could it be that you heard a cricket in the middle of downtown Manhattan like that? And the Ecuadorian said, Well, my ears are different from yours. It all depends on what you're listening for. Here, let me show you. And he reached in his pocket and pulled out a handful of change, a few quarters and three or four nickels and some dimes and pennies. And he says, Now watch this. Opened his hand, dropped the change on the sidewalk in Manhattan. Every head within 50 feet <laughs> stopped, turned around, and looked in the direction of money (laughs) clattering on the sidewalk. (laughs) He said, see, it just depends on what you're listening for. And Chuck Smyndall used that to illustrate the fact that, especially in our present society, distractions and addictions and other priorities cause our sensory system to just be directed in the wrong things. Jesus taught this over and over again about, you know, the affections of the heart. So the concept of a harvest, it all has to do with what you're listening for and what you're aware of. Did you know on February 6, 2022 at 3.30 p.m., the largest social event in our society will kick off at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, the Super Bowl. Two ways you can look at that. Wow, it's going to be a great day, fantastic day for 150,000 people. No? SoFi Stadium only holds about 75,000 people. Why don't I mention 150,000? Because that's what the statistics tell us, statisticians tell us. That's the number of people that step into eternity every day around the world. 150,000 people die in a 24 hour cycle around the world. They head into that harvest that Jesus said was coming. You watch that crowd in SoFi Stadium. Their excitement begins at 3.30 in the afternoon, Pacific Standard Time. By midnight that night, they will all be gone into eternity, statistically. Because in 12 hours, 75,000 people perish. Perish. That's the harvest that will be reaped, and they'll have no answer. They'll have no release. This is why Jesus said, oh, that harvest that is coming is full of people. You go out and pray that the laborers will go with you. The laborers are few. So the first principle, and I'll bring it up to a close here, is this, ask God for a broken heart over a lost world, an attitude of pity, Ask him to burn that into your soul this year. Here's the last. Secondly, he says, ask God for his power to reach the lost world. Develop an attitude of dependency. That's the last phrase. The laborers are few. Therefore, what do you do about a harvest that's so massive of people heading into eternity without God? And the laborers, always being not enough, so few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Ask God to send out more and more people, including you and I, into that harvest. Beseech is the word. It meant to ask out of a deep and real need to plead with God. Remember, 33% of all the people in the country claim to be evangelical. I think it's a much smaller number, but only 2% of those regularly share their faith, and yet 100% of the world is headed to an eternal judgment of one way or the other. That's not good math. I look at this, and I think, well, how do you pray for the lost? We pray for them, and we pray for them to turn, but Jesus actually said you need to pray more for your found church than a lost world. Because where do the laborers come from? They come from those that have already found him, that already know him. They step out of the crowd of those that follow him, and they commit to be laborers. Pray for God to stir the heart of the found so that they can go and reach the lives of the lost. Should you pray more for your lost city or for your found church? Should you pray more for your lost city or your found family? How are you praying for your children? Are you praying for your kids to be passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ? When they get into young adulthood, when they move into a life that they guide on their own, when they move through the university system, when they decide who they'll really be, when they are launched and when they're out of your, your overall presence? Are you praying for them to know God in a passion that consumes their lives, that Jesus Christ is first and always in their hearts? Or are you praying more that they'll take your advice and they'll get a STEM degree in college because those are the four tracks that will give them a great job? Are you praying for them to put all that first and let Jesus Christ come up and fill in the back, the back story after they've got their lives established? Praying for them to marry into the right family and not make the wrong mistakes about money. Praying for them to establish their world and grasp their change off the sidewalk. More than simply being willing to give them over to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I have my dreams for them, but I don't want my dreams to to get in the way of your plans for them. And I want them more than anything else to walk with you in passion and be a light of the gospel to their friends and those in their lives. How are you praying for your found family? How are you praying for this found church? I'll close with this practically. Jesus says prayer is the essence of how we persevere in evangelism. You pray, you ask me to pour my blessing over this work so that some will come in the early harvest, or oh, whosoever will may come. And you stay in the work. Luke Nine Don't you take your hand off the plow as I send you out there and ask for more to come and join you. Pray for more workers to come into the harvest alongside you. And the whole idea there is don't abandon living for the gospel. Now, prayer is a very powerful animator toward evangelism. Two things. When you just begin to pray about people in your life that you know don't know Jesus something rec- begins to change in your heart as you regularly pray for them. I could probably ask for a show of hands, and many of you know that's true. You, your heart begins to soften for them. Your, your, your intensity of concern grows for them. And as you ask God to create gospel conversations, what happens? Those gospel conversations suddenly happen, don't they? It's amazing. So, pray for those in your world that God lay, lays on your heart who are headed toward the great harvest, and pray for God to use you to draw them into the early harvest. Pray for God to create evangelistic opportunities. Pray for God to create situations in their lives where they will need to know someone like you, and where the gospel will suddenly be hungered after by them. Pray for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment as he promised he would do into their lives. God will work and answer your prayers, and it'll work in you and make you ready for when those times come. So, when you pray for others, it's amazing what happens in your evangelistic life. But, secondly, go out and find someone to pray with. Notice he sent them out two by two, notice he was commanding them as a team. There's something that happens in the spiritual life when you get another Christian engaged with you in your walk particularly when it comes to evangelism. So I would challenge you to start praying with somebody else about the lost people in both your lives, in both your worlds, because evangelism here seems to have been built on a partnership of believers, encouraging one another in the great battle. Let me ask you this. Do you know who the believers are at your job this year? How about a New Year's intention? Why don't you ask God to help you find out? the believers. And when you find those believers, ask God to help you to build a relationship with them so that even on the job or maybe at a social engagement after the job, you guys can come together and start supporting each other's Christian walk on the job. Start supporting each other's Christian prayer life about lost friends on the job, lost family members maybe gathering for prayer and having lunch together on your break and having a short Bible study. It only takes a few minutes of the Word of God to encourage you in a powerful way. Why don't you do that this year? I had one lady in a former church that was very timid about her faith. She was working in the the secular high school system. She was a high school teacher, but surrounded by that incredibly pressure-filled environment of secularism and in philosophy conflict, and she had been very timid, and she was convicted about that, but she realized she couldn't do it alone, and so it just struck her to ask God to lead her into finding out if there were any other believing faculty members like her, and she just prayed about it, and God created conversations, and she met one. And she did exactly what I just said. They began to meet and have lunch together. They began to do a short study in the scriptures together. And then they began to pray through a list together of people in that environment that they could influence for Christ. And then they began to pray for courage to take a personal stand in the classroom as they were teaching about things. And this timid woman began to take clear stands so her convictions were known in that high school classroom, and God did a marvelous work of building courage in her life. Do you know who the believers are at your workplace? Find out. Do you know who the believers are in your apartment complex? Another young man I've been talking to and and discipling this last year. Has, has just had a flourishing ministry right in his little apartment complex just by having spirit-led conversations. Basically, the conversation opener is, would you consider yourself a spiritual person? How many people are not going to answer that question? You're, you're going to get a resounding, no way! Or you're going to get a lot of people in our current society that says, yeah, I think I'm a spiritual person. And then the follow-up was, great, tell me about your spiritual interests. And you listen, and then you, they're, they're, they're going to naturally ask you at some point, well, what about yours? And there is the pathway of the gospel. And now he's found out uh, that, that the guy that, that lives above him turns out to be a brand new Christian, but nobody was there to disciple him. Now there's discipleship going on between the floors, getting together, having a meal together, and the gospel is moving. All of that happened by a simple prayer request, God, show me who are the believers in my apartment complex. Who are the believers in your parent-teacher organization? organization that you go to once a month who are the believers in that uh, workout class at the gym who are the believers in any of your social environments that you're part of you say i don't know how to relate to non-believers that's because you don't know who's a believer and who isn't find who the believers are partner with them and you'll have greater courage as two than you would as one do you see the point does someone see my point wow okay there's a lot of prayer work to do (laughs) i'm going to close it because we're going to take communion together in just a moment. And, you know, communion can be a a time when we remember the Lord Jesus. But today I'd like it to be a time of repentance and request. In a few moments, the music is going to start and we're going to walk to the communion tables and take the elements and go back to our seats and we're going to remember what he did. But I'm going to lead us in a short moment before we take the elements of repenting over our indifference. Of listening to the coins in the sidewalk instead of the lost people heading to hell. And ask God to do a work of greater intention in our lives this year.